The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines today. The S&P 500 posts its fourth straight week of gains while investors count down to this week's key Fed decision with the FOMC expected to press pause in a bid to assess the impact of 10 consecutive rate hikes. Our U.S. colleagues will be speaking to Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan later on today in an exclusive interview. UBS completes its takeover of Credit Suisse, claiming the deal marks the start of a new historic chapter for the Swiss banking giant. Elsewhere, crude prices sliding yet again. Uh, WTI below the uh, pivotal $70 a barrel level. This amid growing demand concerns. Whilst Goldman Sachs cuts its outlook for prices and Saudi Arabia's energy minister tells CNBC he's operating in a tough environment. We are working against uh, something called uncertainties and sentiments. And I believe that within the next, this month, hopefully the month after, I don't want to bet and gamble. And Spain's leftist parties strike a last-minute deal to run together in July's general election, giving a boost to the Prime Minister, Pedro Sanchez. But there's still work to do, with polls showing the Conservative People's Party in the lead. Happy Monday. Good morning, Karen. How are you? Good morning. Very well, thank you. Good, good, good. Lovely weekend. Yeah, busy, busy. Yeah, enjoying the, the, the beautiful... Well, I know, yeah. it's more Australian than British, isn't it? Absolutely. That jumped out to me. It's turned cold uh, down under in Australia. Is that right? And here, what was close to 30 degrees over the weekend. Yeah, lots of ruddy Englishmen this morning who once again <laughs> forgot to put on suntan lotion. Please don't. Um, right, OK. Uh, UBS top story once again. Um, I mean... A lot of uh, details about uh, what they're going to be saying, or certainly the red lines within the organisation for Credit Suisse uh, have already hit the wire. But I'll just give you a couple of uh, headlines. And and the headline is that UBS, in an open letter, has said we have completed the takeover of Credit Suisse, uh, which, of course, is a long way from completing the integration. I think the latter being more important, perhaps, than the former in some ways. In an open letter, it says we'll combine expertise size and leadership in wealth management to create an even stronger joint company. And as we said in the headlines, this is the start of a new historic chapter. Um, Let's leave that there for a moment because that's all the the flashes we have on that. Let's get to a bit more detail on what we heard over the weekend and then we'll get uh, an uh, expert view from Zurich on this. Because UBS is reportedly set to impose stringent conditions, restrictions on Credit Suisse bankers. Now, according to sources speaking with the Financial Times, UBS executives have drawn up nearly two dozen red lines outlining prohibitive activities for Credit Suisse staffers, including a ban on new clients from high-risk countries, Right. And launching new products without approval from UBS managers. And I will just say briefly, some of these rules, as I read through them, according to the FT copy, excellent copy from Owen Walker and Robert Smith at the FT. I thought to myself, well, when would this stuff have been allowed anyway? Uh, and, And it just shows the difference, perhaps, in the culture 
at Credit Suisse compared with its new owner, UBS. Uh, Beat Wittmann uh, will have a view on this. He is a partner at Porter Advisors and been one of our go-to gentlemen uh, on this whole story. Um, Beat, lovely to see you. Uh, happy Monday. Just, just first of all about the, the finalisation of the takeover. Any thoughts on that one, my friend? Well, I think um, this has been uh, very timely. Uh, it was promised by the end of May, but it's a huge task. So I think uh, the roadmap is uh, accomplished from a uh, UBS point of view. And I think it's overall very uh, positive. Uh, if you have such a transaction, um, then you do it really uh, with speed, speed, speed. That's in the interest of uh, all parties involved. And uh, so far, so good uh, is my comment on this one. Um, so far, so good. But I mean, again, it's like buying a car. We say, that's a beauty. Look, I like that one. That is well too cheap. But then you look under the hood a little bit and you find all kinds of interesting stuff. Uh, and then you get it jacked up a little bit higher. And then they point out the rust bubbles. That's someone who had cars in the 70s and 80s. I can assure you saying that. Uh, and all kinds of other issues. And then you look at the clock and you say, oh, has that bit had gone back a little bit on what actually the mileage is? So, yes, I appreciate that the actual overall car looks quite a nice fit. Uh, for the portfolio, but is it actually uh, going to be that smooth sailing? Well, it's certainly a challenge, um, but let's not forget uh, about that car and whatever is under the hood. Uh, UBS, uh, uh, due to the uh, emergency uh, operation and the uh, collective failure of, uh, of policymakers and, of course, of, of Credit Suisse uh, board, got over a weekend an extraordinarily advantageous uh, deal. So there's so much uh, margin of safety in there in terms of uh, price, in terms of credit lines, in terms of risk sharing uh, um, with with the government, that this is a, a great deal indeed. Um, but then I think UBS is, is facing three challenges right now. Um, very timely today, the closing of the transaction, but just the physical um, uh, integration into uh, of Credit Suisse into UBS uh, target operating model is really a task. And what they put out as red lines in terms of communication, sorry to say, that's standard operating procedure. That's exactly what, what a bank should do in any case. So that's, that's all good. But that's a task. Then the second task, of course, is, uh, is the interference and changes coming from our political capital firm, there will be a parliamentary uh, commission of inquiry, an expert commission on banking stability. Um, and then we have federal elections. So the worst is some populist demands and not really addressing some structural deficiencies. And UBS has to deal with the political uh, framework in that context. And that will be particularly painful uh, when there will be job losses, closures of branches across Switzerland. That's the second point. And the third point not to forget is the uh, worsening macro backdrop, credit crunch uh, globally, and still the painful working through of uh, significantly higher interest rates, causing, of course, all kinds of uh, uh, casualties and volatility in global capital market, which is the normal uh, uh, business, not only for, uh, for Credit Suisse, but of course also for UBS. So these three fronts, it's all about execution risk, um, certainly all resources and intentions in place, but the proof is in the pudding and we will see it well uh, indicated by the share price uh, moving forward. 
Way to flesh out all the different challenges, all the legacy issues that have been picked up, but then the short, medium, longer term challenges for the combined entity from here. And just to pick up on your point around execution risk, it's all very well to have uh, a number out there that's been negotiated now as part of this agreement, the, the loss protection agreement, just uh, what the government contributes and what UBS contributes. But now as we talk about the future and behaviour, and you know, this was very much stressed around how the culture, uh, uh, cultural differences exist between UBS and credit. Swiss bankers about who they shouldn't shouldn't be doing business with. We have seen from other banks uh, across the course of the last number of decades, it's very hard to change culture in the bank. How do we think about this in terms of execution risk if the bank is now having to stress you can't do business with uh, countries or clients from countries such as Libya, Russia, Sudan, Venezuela uh, when launching new products? Ukrainian politicians apparently also hands off here, state-owned enterprises too, uh, will be blocked because of money laundering issues. How do we think about the, the culture here and the risk? Well, first and foremost, it's important to emphasize that this is a takeover um, uh, this has been emphasized quite rightly by UBS and um, and so some in the comment I had and also former uh, Credit Suisse leadership was talking about a merger. So that's a takeover and it has to be a takeover because otherwise you cannot really address these uh, challenges and legacies which will have uh, still effects over uh, not only months but years to come. So there's only one target operating model and you have to fit uh, all the legacy business and all the new businesses according to those um, guidelines and incentives, of course. And with the, the uh, regulation and the incentives, there's a lot of discussion about um, capital requirements in a new bank, then bonus payments and all these uh, various topics, which will be on the platter uh, for political uh, discussion the next few months. And UBS has been uh, quite defensive and uh, in a wait-and-see attitude. And that, I think, has been quite uh, considerate and good. Um, but, you know, it uh, remains to be hoped that there will be uh, some, some structural reform uh, also in terms of regulation in the trinity of policymaking between the central bank, uh, the federal regulator, FINMA, uh, and the finance minister. But, you know, the danger, of course, that, uh, that that is not going to happen because it has been collective failure. And collective failure means everybody is responsible, meaning nobody is responsible. So, um, but UBS has to deal with whatever comes from that side. Bayat, stay with us because I know you're going to talk about other things and markets with us in a few moments. time. The only thing I will say is if this is such a slam dunk deal, and I'll leave this as an open question. You and I can talk about this with Karen on another occasion. If this is such a great deal for UBS, taking on so many wonderful assets at such a bargain basement price, why is UBS still trading over two Swiss francs lower than where it was in early March? 19... Uh, 20 dollar, 20 uh, Swissy and 68 is with the closing price on the 3rd of March, just before this crisis. They're currently trading around about 18 as well. A lot of people have a lot of concerns still about this one, but we'll come back to this one a little bit later on. Right, these US markets, um, interesting week, Karen. Yeah, it's a big week ahead. Central banks everywhere 
just about meeting from the Fed to the ECB, Bank of Japan, all the major ones that could impact uh, how markets view monetary policy and what sort of tightening we're going to get through the system here. Don't forget, we're coming off the back of what was a very strong week. We started talking about a bull market for the S&P 500. Wasn't exactly a bullish trend Friday, was it? Uh, less than five points to the upside. So it wasn't exactly claiming that new ground that bounced uh, around about a tenth of a percent. But still, it was a positive week and uh, the four tenths plus on the S&P, certainly the right direction. Fourth positive week where you've very much seen the gains has been on the tech sector and the Nasdaq. Seventh positive week in a row. So telling you again about the direction. Worth just digging a little bit further into the detail in terms of what we saw, though, because technology over the course of the trading week was actually one of the laggards. We saw some broadening out in terms of exposures, some of the market participants liking the market and getting dragged off the sidelines because of this uh, so-called bull market run we may be seeing, but they weren't exactly going into technology. We actually saw consumer discretionary was the best performer, up 2.4% over the trading week. Uh, that was the area of focus. But of course, a lot to play for this week, a huge focus on what the Fed does, whether we skip, we hop, or in fact, uh, whether we uh, see more plot maneuvering, which suggests we're still going up from here when it comes to interest rates. Let's take a look at Treasuries and then as we get set up for this uh, fairly significant week for central banks, 3.75 where we're at on the two-year. But like boiling a frog, the short end, you can see we're now at 4.61%. So we've uh, certainly picked up some steam over the last couple of weeks. Uh, by comparison, uh, let's see what the commodity complex is doing today. Oil today, as we uh, move into the Monday trade, is down 1.3%. So we've slipped below 70 on the WTI numbers. On Brent, we're at 73.86, also down morning session by more than 1%. To the Asian markets, and the early trade looks like this. Uh, Japanese stocks again firmer. It's a fairly wide bounce today from healthcare names to semiconductors. We're up four tenths of a percent, and you can see 32,000. 300 plus, in fact, just closing the range to 32,400 almost. We're a whisker off that. The markets across in China mixed, as you can see, a little bit of green for the Shenzhen, four tenths, the Shanghai Composites weaker, the Cosby in South Korea also reversing at this hour. Steve. Uh, the Federal Reserve, as Karen was just saying, is expected to hold rates steady at this week's meeting and keep its benchmark lending rate in the range of five to five and a quarter percent after 10 consecutive rate increases. Now, efforts have helped ease price pressures, no doubt about it, in the U.S. Inflation remaining well above the central bank's goal, with a handful of more hawkish officials, including the St. Louis Fed President James Bullard and Cleveland's Loretta Mesta, open to raising rates further. Ahead of the decision, we'll get a fresh reading on the inflation data with CPI out on Tuesday and PPI, producer prices, out on Wednesday. So let's get to Bayat again uh, on um, the markets and where you should be putting your money. Of course, Bayat joins us from Porter Advisors. Um, I'm less interested, Bayat, in the decision for June. I think that's been very well flagged. I'm more interested in the SEP, the so-called dot plot, because I think what it could do uh, is douse some of that market expectations that the Fed, whilst keeping rates where they are for now, could be cutting aggressively uh, at the end of this year and in early 2024. That's my view. But what about you? You're more important. Well, I think this depends basically on uh, the rate of change in inflation. Um, that's one thing. And we see, of course, that uh, that dot plot would only really uh, come down if inflation uh, figures would surprise basically on the downside. That's a possibility, of course, but we see it in the capital markets, there's a big question mark. And uh, obviously, 
Um, it has been underestimated that central banks really mean uh, business here. And that means uh, pressuring uh, monetary policy um, in order to achieve target rates. So I don't expect that we achieve targets or rates at any time soon. But clearly, we see a weakening uh, economy. We see also the outlooks of the OECD and the IMF. And we saw export figures in China. We see the softening in the US and, of course, the effects in uh, in Europe. So um, the fallout in demand will also help to bring that inflation uh, down. That's the only game changer here. But we are not there yet. And therefore, markets are really choppy right now and on a downward trajectory. It feels as though we need some encouraging news from here, though, because if we get a hop or skip, we're almost buying time for the Fed to ascertain just how strong monetary policy is working at this point. You mentioned the inflation rate, but the headline could be very different from the core. And on the headline, we are expecting to see a significant movement this time round, well off the 49 to 5% down to the very low fours, 4.1, for instance. But the core is where it could still be stubborn. And any um, you know high number in the core could be blamed on what we saw from these used car market, which seems like it was a supply chain issue, still a legacy impact. So how do we think about these numbers? If we get movement from the headline, will that be enough to encourage markets thinking we're pretty much done when it comes to rate hikes? No, headline inflation like energy, food, volatile and very cyclical, that won't do uh, the trick, clearly not. And central banks are absolutely right about that. I think one of the of the key factors uh, is the lagging uh, labor market, um, which has been very uh, uh, strong and now resilient uh, on both sides uh, of the Atlantic. Um, that's a key to watch. But we see clearly there also uh, a softening. And then let's not forget markets are discounting mechanisms. They uh, look six, nine months ahead. Um, so in, in, in that sense, I think there is uh, some hope at the horizon. And I, uh, I think it's rather um, a slow motion process of adjustment. And let's not face it, markets are, are very, very selective. There are few sectors, few stocks leading the market on, on the upside and then also on, on the correction side. So there's huge dispersion of performance between country sectors and stocks. That I expect to uh, to persist, uh, but we see the start of the softening in, in core inflation, and that is what central banks are focusing on. So, Bert, when it comes to the markets, we did see some tiptoeing into areas that were not technology last week, a slight breadth coming back into the markets. Do you buy into that? Are we looking at a genuine bull market rally here that could lift areas other than just technology players like the big fang stocks? No, I, I think globally exposed uh, stocks in the US and also in Europe, uh, strong uh, products, leading companies with very strong financials. Uh, for them, these uh, pressures and downturns are very advantageous because they gain market share. They can even engage in, in acquisitions. That's a rolling process. So I would clearly focus on big cap uh, global stocks and 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 strong uh, strong management and strong financials across various sectors that would include growth uh, sectors like technology but also value uh, down to uh, consumer staples and health um Bea, what about the strength of u.s corporates as well we've had what is it now six weeks up for the nasdaq the s p's had a good long run as well albeit last week it was only up four tenths of one percent 
What is the state of the finances of U.S. corporations at the moment as well? I see very conflicting evidence. Free cash flow, net net looks quite good. Um, there's conflicting data on the levels of debt as well. And of course, that means how difficult it's going to be for some to refinance or not, as the case may be. Do they look good value broader U.S. stocks rather than just those specific magnificent seven names? No, the broader market is uh, is quite okay. I, I I think it's really that you have to look into the market because there is very narrow breadth in the market. But the overall market, you know, has digested a lot of uh, bad news, bad economics uh, the past uh, twelve months, and it's on a very uh, healthy foot. Um, and uh, I think equities uh, clearly are uh, the asset class of choice if you look forward one year and then three and five years. But focus on quality at this stage. It's uh, too early to engage in more risky stuff. And I think um, that we will still see uh, uh, rising default rates and, um, and, and, and problems in, in balance sheets and consolidation in various sectors. So it's a big winners and losers game here. Yeah, thank you very much for joining us again today uh, for all the big news this morning. Beat Vitman with our partner, Porter Advisors. And just a quick note for more on markets and why JP Morgan's bond chief says this could be reminiscent of the 2008 financial crisis. You can check out CNBC.com. Ahead on the show, collaboration, not competition with China is Saudi Arabia's goal. We're going to bring you the latest from Riyadh next. And be sure to start your day with all the latest market news with CNBC's newsletter, The Daily Open. You can subscribe at cnbc.com slash dailyopen or by scanning the QR code on your screen now. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Odi Asset Management founder Crispin Odi has left the fund amid claims he's sexually assaulted or harassed 13 women over a decades-long period. According to the Financial Times, EU funds managed by the firm may restrict investor withdrawals in a bid to contain the fallout from Odi's departure. Reuters says Odi AM's prime brokers, Goldman's, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, are reviewing their relationship with the fund. Elsewhere, Goldman Sachs has lowered its December 2023 Brent forecast to $86 a barrel, down from $95. The softening comes as supply beats from Iran and Russia send speculative positioning to near record lows, despite Saudi Arabia's recent production cut. And, and that's very interesting. Speculative positions lows, despite the protestations of previously that we've seen from uh, the Saudi energy minister. Uh, Saudi wants stronger cooperation with China and less competition. Uh, that's really interesting, isn't it? With Energy Minister Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman saying that he has ignored Western concerns, uh, warming political relations between Riyadh and Beijing have led to increased security and tech collaboration. Uh, and the kingdom is looking to boost energy ties. The Saudi energy minister told CNBC's Dan Murphy there is value in working with China as the country's oil demand continues to grow. Uh, Dan, there is so much to unpack there. And 
goodness me, two conversations with His Royal Highness in the last week as well. But, and there is a big but, and that is the price at the moment. And despite everything that His Royal Highness has been working for, prices are not moving in the direction that he's been trying to get them to. How concerned is he? That's right, Stephen. I did ask him that question on stage here at the Arab-China Business Summit in Riyadh yesterday. I said, how is the market reacting to this latest OPEC Plus decision to extend the output curves? And, of course, what he called the Saudi lollipop, which was that move to deepen oil production cuts by a million barrels starting from next month. Of course, we've just seen WTI slip below 70 US dollars a barrel. He says there is a disconnect between prices and fundamentals right now, but he says he's also not too concerned about the direction of the oil market because his view is that there is likely going to be a tightening throughout the course of the second half that will ultimately lead to a more stable market. But of course, exactly what happens remains to be seen because he also says that this is an oil market that is battling what he called uncertainties uh, and sentiments as well. So watch this space. In the meantime, we have seen Chinese business leaders flocking into Riyadh in the last 24 hours, seeking to tap into Saudi Arabia's deep pools of public and private capital as part of the Arab-China Business Summit, now in its 10th year. And this is fascinating because this su summit comes just days after we saw the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, also in the kingdom, meeting with Saudi Arabia's crown prince and basically attempting to firm up the US-Saudi relationship, which has been on shaky ground. So this move by the Saudis to perhaps move closer towards China has raised some eyebrows in the West. And this is something that I also spoke with His Royal Highness about. I asked what is going to happen next when it comes to the Sino-Saudi relationship and is he concerned about some of the criticism, some of the skepticism out there about this deeper collaboration that we see between these two powers. Here's how he responded. We came to recognize the reality of today that China is taking, had taken a lead, could continue to take that lead. We don't have to compete with China, we have to collaborate with China, so as also collaborating with everybody else. We will never go again to this zero-sum game, but there is a value for working with China because they have taken the lead, they have got the right manufacturers, everybody is buying from these equipments from China. Many countries, they are into the high, even 50%, 60%, 70%. What is the hiccup of collaborating with China? But that doesn't mean we're not going to collaborate with, our, with others. His Royal Highness Prince Abdulaziz there speaking to me on stage at the summit in Riyadh. And, you know, it's also fascinating because you really get the sense here that Saudi Arabia is not going to go back to that zero-sum game foreign policy that he was talking about. The Saudis are more than happy to do business with the Russians, more than happy to do business with the Chinese, and yes, also happy to do business with the United States as well as they hit reset and accelerate the Vision 2030 agenda that they say has a lot of synergies with China's Belt and Road project as well. So leaning into partners that will ultimately help to transform this society and transition this economy. There's no stopping at the moment. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.